where I grab your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. I don't know if you're like this, but sometimes when I'm reading my Bible, I get the, I, I get the personal feeling that God has left some things out. Um, again, the problem obviously is with me, and it's just a feeling, but the frustration is real all the same. I often want God to give me through Scripture more than He has determined to give. And those of you who have studied things deeply have probably found yourself in that place before. It's like, why didn't God include a little bit more detail in the eschatological or end times passages so that we could all stop arguing about that? <laughs> you know, just a little bit more information, fill in those gaps. Or why not spell out the answer to the question of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility so that Leighton Flowers and James White could stop making videos that come up on my YouTube feed about it? You know, we just settle it in a verse, God, you know, just spell it out. The Bible doesn't always give us what we want it to, but of course God has given us all that we need. But the Bible isn't only missing things from our perspective in terms of theological questions, but the biblical narratives are often missing the kind of details that we would very much like for them to include. Uh, we want a more detailed run-up to the David and Bathsheba indiscretion, don't we? So that we don't have to defend King David against accusations of rape from modern feminists. Uh, I'm sure you guys have seen these dust-ups online. It's like, if you'd just given us a little bit more detail in the narrative, then you know, they wouldn't even be able to make that accusation. Or, or we want you know, the controversial particulars about Ruth's night with Boaz. We, we'd like to fill in some of those gaps more because as best we can tell, it looks like maybe some lines were crossed or that's just a really awkward first date. And if you haven't read Ruth in the Wild, go back and you'll see what I'm talking about. It's like, God, could you just filled in some of those gaps for us so that we're worth all these question marks? We would like to have like a, a where are they now segment for the people whom Jesus healed in the gospel accounts, wouldn't we? Have you noticed that the authors have a tendency to leave us hanging? Even as we've been reading in Matthew chapters 8 and chapter, and chapter 9, Jesus resuscitates a little girl and the response of her family isn't even documented. Like, well, I'd like to know what happened. Did they become followers of Christ? Did the little girl live happily ever after? How, how, did this, how did this end? Jesus heals two blind men and we don't even get a word about their experience of sight for the first time. The lepers from last week, the centurion's servant, both healed with no documentation of their response. Why do you think that is? Why is it that we don't get the human interest story that we're often looking for as we read the gospel accounts? I think a couple of things. One, the story isn't about them or their being healed. That isn't Scripture's primary aim or objective in terms of what it's seeking to communicate. The biblical authors don't want us wrapped up in their personal stories. Rather, it wants to wrap their personal stories up in the story of Christ. As is the goal with our personal lives, that our lives would be hidden with Christ in God. Such that the people and their names and all of those particulars are in fact not primarily what the biblical authors are intending to communicate. It's intended that we would fade to the background of the story like the people who were healed did so that Christ's work is in the foreground. I think that's probably one of the reasons. Another, though, is that we're always reliving these stories ourselves. 
as Christ is doing for us in a myriad of ways, all of the things that he did for the folks in the gospel accounts. The story is ongoing, as it were, in our own lives and families, such that we are, in effect, the where are they now. Especially because, as we constantly talk about, God is not an individualist. He's dealing with a people. That means the story is still ongoing in our lives and even in our corporate life together. We are the rest of the story. These miracle events were documented not so that we would know how the miracle recipients responded, but rather to evoke a response from us. Now, having said those things, there is one miracle event that we'll consider this morning to which we do have a documented response. And it's the scene where our Lord calms the storm for his disciples. So let me read it for you. Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 23. It says this, And when he, the Lord Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now, of the miracles that our Lord performed, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, I think that the calming of the sea is his most dramatic display of divine power. Of course, there were many impressive healings and exorcisms done by way of divine power, but we've got human versions of those miracles. We've got human versions of them. Doctors, to some degree or another, can heal. Now, granted, it's not instant, right? It's not instantaneous, and, and most of the modern ones sadly don't do that, as their practices are set up more to make money by hawking pharmaceutical product, products than to actually help anyone get better. But with that point to the side, you get what I mean. Most of us have had the experience of some physical ailment or infirmity, or infirmity having been cured. Maybe even rapidly by something in God's creation that he intended us to discover for just such a use. Most of us have had the experience of having been afflicted in some way physically. And then we find this or we call grandma and she tells us to do X, Y, or Z. It's like, wow, I feel so much better. There's a human version of that. Right? The point simply being that men aren't powerless as it relates to healing because God has provided some resources for us unto that purpose. Same with demons. Same with demons. Jesus did a lot of exorcisms. There are blood-bought resources given by Christ that give us authority over evil spirits such that we can face them not arrogantly or self-assuredly, but nonetheless confidently, knowing that because we belong to God, we cannot be possessed by anyone else. Right? But what about wind and waves? What about, what about the forces of nature, as we've come to call them? These things are utterly outside of our control. God has given no resource by which we can command or control them. We are powerless in the face of them. For all of our technological advancement and even our ability to forecast the weather, the one thing that we cannot do is stop it. You can't stop it. That's why we issue hurricane and tornado warnings 
not announce cancellations. <laughs> you see the difference between those two things, right? There's a hurricane developing off of the coast of Florida, but don't worry, we told it to, to stop. We said, knock it off. Said, no weatherman ever, right? No, the best we can do is say, uh, looks like it's coming, y'all probably won't leave if you can. That's the best we've got. Looks like it's coming, you should probably get out of there. Man has to square with his smallness when confronted with something like the sea. And the one that, uh, excuse me, and the one that uh, the disciples were on, the sea that they were on, was actually quite a small sea. It's not the kind of sea where if you were on it, you would be thinking, uh, oh man, this is a, a massive ocean, I'm just overwhelmed. But I will say this about the sea that they're on. It's only 13 miles and 150 feet deep, but it is known to this day for sudden squalls uh, that can overwhelm you, and especially the kind of vessels that they were on then, capsizing their fishing vessels and drowning people. This was a relatively common thing, such that in the face of these squalls that they, at that point, couldn't even predict. When's it going to come? I don't know. What's going to happen? I don't know. Kiss your wife before you go fishing because you don't know. You see, our delusions of grandeur rightly die in the face of natural disasters, which should actually be termed divine disasters. Because nature doesn't actually do anything naturally, not automatically. It does what it does because of divine determination and command, and Scripture makes this point over and over and over and over again. You see, the reason that we want everything to be reducible down to natural processes is because natural processes can't be sovereign over us. <coughs> And so we wanted to say, oh, yeah, it's just a natural process, you know, and we did some studies and here's a journal and we figured out when these things do that. And yeah, we don't have anyone or anything to submit to. We think we just need a little bit more time and a little bit more technology and then finally we'll subdue the natural order totally. But if God governs nature, then we're forced to admit the limits of our dominion because our dominion is dominated by God's. It runs into the brick wall of God's control and sovereignty. In our age, it's easy for us to feel significant, important, powerful, and in control, isn't it? I, I can change the temperature in my house right now from my phone. Thanks, Philip. <laughs> that's, that's power. It's control. I want to sweat Heather out. I can sweat her out. I want to freeze it. Freeze it from my phone. Right? We're, we're so powerful in our technological age. But you let a hurricane hit, and the reality of our impotence will hit simultaneously. What can you do? Somebody constructed an app that is going to do something about that? God uses the sea to make the point of our smallness over and over and over again in Scripture. In fact, Job chapter 38, you don't have to turn to these, I'll just rattle a few off. Job 38, 8 through 11. Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it to set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come, seas, and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. 
Psalm 29.3, the voice of the Lord is over the waters, and the God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. Psalm 65.5-6, by awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might, who stills the roaring seas, the roaring of their waves and the tumult of peoples. Psalm 89.8-9, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 107, 24 through 25. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. See, over and over again in Scripture, the biblical authors, or God himself, simply claims the sea as the realm of God's control. Not man's. Not man's. There's even a bit more going on than that when we consider the ancient thinking about the sea more broadly. Virtually every Gentile nation, with all of their competing religious systems, saw the sea as the habitation of whatever their Satan or demonic figure was. The ancient Near East was full of beliefs that the sea was somehow the realm of demons and evil. And you could see why they would attribute such a thing to it. It kills people. It's unpredictable. It seems like it's just this raging tempest at some points in time, and there's nothing that you can do Per all of the verses that we just read, there's nothing you can do to stop it. And so they had a tendency in pagan thought to attribute evil, even some level of demonization, to the seas. The sea was nearly always identified with a god of evil of some kind or another. The ancient Canaanite myths saw the sea as being in revolt against the Creator. The Ugaritic, the Ugaritic texts, which describe ancient Near Eastern peoples and their religions, feature Baal in a battle against, quote, the prince of the sea and the judge of the river. This is one of the reasons, some scholars say, that Yahweh is always flexing by asserting his control over the waters. Because none of the false religious systems even made the claim that their God could handle all of the domains of nature. That's why they had a pantheon, right? It's like, well, you've got this guy who controls that and this guy who controls that. Oh, and he's bad because look at what he's always doing with the water, right? It didn't even make the claim that there's one who's over all of it because to make such a claim would be immediately to falsify, falsify your religion because you couldn't back up said claim. But, but Yahweh makes the claim, doesn't he? Yahweh makes the claim. He says, yeah, it's mine. It does what I say. That wasn't a demon or a sea prince or a river judge. I did that. I sent that. That was me. All through Scripture, God is making a mockery of the gods of the sea, of the Satans, of these other religions, who had supposed authority over that which Yahweh alone controls. Now, that background is part of what makes this scene in Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27, so intense, particularly for these disciples. 
You see, the Hebrews knew that Yahweh is the God who made the sea and the dry land. They knew that. These men knew all of those Old Testament texts that I just read to you. They know of God's exclusive control over the sea. They know about all of that pagan cultural backdrop. They knew when God was flexing on the false gods of the nations. They've got all of that background in their head. In fact, Jonah declared to the sailors that his God was the God of the wind and the seas, didn't he? (laughs) This was entrenched in Hebrew thinking because it's entrenched in the Hebrew Bible. They knew this. All the sailors were calling out to their false pantheons as Jonah is asleep in the bottom of the boat. And the ship's captain, as you know, rouses him and says, Petition your God. See if your God can do anything about it. You remember what Jonah says. He's like, oh yeah, that's my God. Yeah, he he could definitely do something about it. He's the one who made it. He controls the sea. And then Jonah interestingly enough, then becomes the sacrifice that calms the storm as he's thrown into the sea. Right? I'll let you ponder the foreshadowing typology of that one for yourself. We'll get there in Matthew chapter 12 explicitly when Jesus says that he is giving that generation, quote, the sign of Jonah. But again, this background makes this scene incredible for these Jewish men. They know the one who controls the sea. Their Old Testament proclaims it over and over and over again. It's Yahweh and Yahweh alone who controls the sea. But here's the thing. None of them had ever actually seen Yahweh exercising that control in front of them. They knew all the verses. They know there's one person who can make pronouncements that even the wind and waves obey. There's one, and all of the verses are flooding their Hebrew minds. There's only one who controls it, but they've never seen it. Until that night. Hadn't witnessed it, but now Yahweh is embodied before them. The image of the invisible God is in front of them. The exact imprint of his nature, upholding the universe by the word of his power, is in front of them, speaking that word of power with their own ears there to hear it. He's standing in front of them, and he acts on behalf of them, calming the storm that threatened their lives. Pointing, of course, to the greater storm that he would calm on their behalf, that being the storm of God's wrath for their sin. At one and the same time, Jesus is Jonah, sacrificed to calm the storm. He's also the stable and strong ark that we enter to survive the storm, and he's the one who controls the storm in the first place. He is all of these biblical themes wrapped up into one standing in front of them. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. The disciples are rightly overwhelmed. They marvel, saying, What sort of man is this that even the wind and seas obey him? Now, something that we can't overlook here is what got the disciples into this predicament in the first place, though. We need to spend just a moment on that. You see, it was following Jesus that put them in the middle of the storm. You remember verse 23, it says, And he, the Lord Jesus, got into into the boat, and his disciples followed him, because that's what disciples are supposed to do, right? 
You follow Jesus. Jesus got into the boat. They enter the boat dutifully doing their duty as disciples. Now, at the beginning of chapter 8, following Jesus led to great wonder. You remember that there was a crowd and Jesus' disciples who followed him down the mountain in chapter 8, verse 1. And what was the result of them following Jesus down the mountain? Well, it was that they, they got to see all of these wonderful healings and a flurry of blessing and all these wonderful things. So, at, at, earlier in the chapter, following Jesus led to great wonder. Verse 1 says, When he came down the mountain, great crowds followed him, and behold, he heals lepers and a centurion's servant and Peter's mother-in-law, and many other healings occurred. Following Jesus led to great wonder. But now we see that following Jesus led the disciples into great danger. Now it leads them into great danger. Verse 23 says, When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, a great storm arose. So here, following Jesus leads to great danger. Verse 1 and following is true. And verse 23 and following is true. Following Christ leads to great wonder and to great danger. These are both realities. Both the wonder and the danger are from Him and serve His purposes. Jesus puts his disciples in danger, and then he takes a nap to make sure they feel the pressure of the whole thing. That's what he does. Similarly, he places you and I in the boat that we're in, on this sea, in this time, with a set of commands to obey that he knows are going to make the wind blow and the waves rise in your life and in mine. Hasn't he done that? If I'm honest about that, there's going to be a storm. <laughs> if I hold the biblical line here, things are going to get rough. Jesus leans in. I know. Get it. Get it. Preachers are always talking for years about get out of the boat. Get out of the boat. Leave your comfort zone. I was reading this the other day. I was like, it's just as terrifying inside the boat. <laughs> what do you mean, get out of the boat? <laughs> I don't want to get in the boat, Jesus. I see what happens when people follow you in the boats. <laughs> it's all terrifying. And it's all wonderful. It's both. Following Jesus leads to great wonder, and it leads to great danger. The word that's translated storm in this account is actually the Greek word seismos, and it means shaking, commotion, or quaking. Shaking, commotion, or quaking. And interestingly, and I think significantly, there are two other quakes in Matthew's gospel. You may already know what they are off the top of your head. One is at Christ's crucifixion. The other is at Christ's resurrection. Two other quakes. There's this quake and there's those two quakes. And that means that this quaking is always, in Matthew's gospel, attended by salvation. Always. Every seismos, every quake, has a salvation that is attached to it. You need to take that, you need to remember it. You need to take that to heart for the day that you need it. That every divine commotion that shakes up your life is the antecedent of a salvation event. That's true. 
Every time God hurts, inconveniences, or incapacitates us, he is setting himself up to heal us. That's what he's doing. So let's talk briefly about our storm. Not necessarily your and my personal ones, although this text is applicable to them, but I'm interested in the storm that we'll endure together. There is, as many of you know, a national storm brewing. A storm that I take as God's judgment on a people who have abandoned Him and given themselves all kinds of sins and atrocities that cause God to remove His blessing and abundance and to place a pressure on a people. You see, we founded a nation in covenant with God and in pursuit of His glory. And if you doubt that, if you doubt that, if you've read a lot of revisionist history about our nation's founding and think that it's mainly Lockean secularism and utilitarianism, not people who viewed themselves as being in covenant with God, then I'll pass you some accurate history, particularly on the colonies who literally wrote out covenants that they were establishing with God. God, we are these kinds of people. We're settling this land for this purpose. We're in covenant with you for the glory of your name. And we're entrenching your law as the law of our land. That's how this whole thing started. We began seeking to manifest Christ's kingdom. But just two centuries later, we have governing officials openly declaring the right of a mother to slaughter her child for convenience because it doesn't accord with her lifestyle pursuits. She got to go to community college. How's she going to do that with a baby? Really? Okay, just murder it. Okay. God's biological design fails to accord with man's self-indulgence, so just kill what God designed. Just two centuries after making a covenant with God. But the question is, how did we get here? In a nation that still boasts of a 63% Christian population. 63%! That down from 75% a decade ago. How did this happen? How did we get here? 210 million Christians in a nation of 332 million. And we've come to a place where living girlfriends, abortions, sodomy, pornography, and all the rest of it are dominant features and fruit of our civilization. That's what we produce. That's what we're known for. How did that happen? Particularly, how did it happen when the secularists who actually believe that all of these things are a benefit and would argue for their virtues in public... All the people who actually believe that those things are good breed dogs, not children. So how did they gain such societal impact when there's so few of them? How did that happen? How did they influence our culture and whose children did they train in their ways in order to become as powerful as they've become? You know the answer to the question. Ours. Because Christians simply became breeders for secularists. That's how it happened. We sent our children away from home to receive an education in secular humanism so that we could send our wives away to make us some more money. And when they would get home from school, 
Obviously, we were too tired to read them the Bible or train them in, in catechism or to teach them to think and live like Christians. I'm tired at the end of the day. I don't have time to do that. So what do we do? We handed them a television remote or an iPad or we put a television in their room. And while they were getting out of our hair so that we could relax at the end of the day, we too eroded away the final vestiges of our own biblical worldview by binge-watching Netflix ourselves just to make sure that we were becoming thoroughly trained in secularism as well. That's how it happened. And then, when the paganism to which we gave ourselves and our children began to manifest itself in a way that we didn't like, in an act of utter self or excuse me, in a lack of utter uh, lacking self-awareness, we actually thought that it was the secularist's fault and not ours. I can't tell you how many, how many conservative Christians do we hear railing against the left and liberals and we're all going to drink leftist tears. It's like, no, those should be conservative tears because how did that happen? We did that. We did that. Again, they had dogs. We gave them our children. That's how that happened. That's how that happened. So the question is, what will God do to such a people? What will God do to people like that? Particularly when we still haven't gotten to the point where we've realized that we did it and are ready to repent of it, and instead we're just mad at them. What will God do to us? I'll tell you what he'll do. He'll give us Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. He'll do that. He'll give us the World Economic Forum. He'll give us that. He'll give us COVID-19 and its vaccine. He'll give us that. He'll give us more restrictive state control. He'll give us price hikes and food shortages. He'll give us that. He'll make sure that the food that you can't afford is poisoned. He'll do that for you. Give you that? He'll make sure that those who see these things clearly and speak about them honestly get censored and aren't heard. He'll do that too. And then, best we can tell, he'll take a nap. Gonna go catch some Z's in the bottom of the boat. You guys feel that pressure for a minute. That's what he'll do. But in truth, ours is a God who never sleeps nor slumbers. And he controls the wind and the waves of every variety. So as we stare down the possibility of food shortages or millworm meat, civil sanctions of a growing intensity for those who are willing to speak truthfully about all of these things, we must keep in the front of our minds the fear-arresting fact that our God authors history. And he's placed us in this segment of it for the glory of his name. So we don't cower, nor do we cover our eyes. We don't do either of those things. Because we have a text like Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. See, we look at the wind and we look at the waves. And we see that our, our feet are beginning to get wet because the boat's being swamped. It's taken on some water. We see all of that. And you know what we do when we see all of that? We smile. You know why? Because we're thinking, I can't wait to see how he's going to get, out of, get us out of this one. I can't wait to see how he's going to get us out of this one. 
You see, the disciples were right to call out to Jesus in the midst of the storm. And yet, if you were following the reading of the text closely, you notice that our brothers received a rebuke. Well, we may be thinking, they did the right thing, Jesus. They're in a jam, and they went to the person who could do something about it, and Jesus rebuked them. Well, but why did they get rebuked? They didn't get rebuked because they called out to Jesus. They got rebuked because of their panic. They got rebuked because they shouldn't have been panicked. They shouldn't have been faithless. They shouldn't have been frantic. They shouldn't have been disoriented. They shouldn't have been any of those things, precisely because of who was in the boat with them. We ought not be panicked because ours is a Savior who is easily roused and ever attentive to the cries of His people. And we have all of this documented, account after account after account, of how God comes for His people and He rescues them. And so for us, we see that wind, we see those waves, we feel the water at our feet. And again, there's nothing in us that feels shaken or panicked or fearful for we know the one who controls the wind and the waves. And he has promised that all he does is for our good and for his glory. So we smile. I wonder how he's going to get us out of this one. Let's pray.